I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sophie McIntosh talks about her latest novel, Blue Ticket. Sophie McIntosh is the author of The Water Cure, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2018 and won a Betty Trask Award in 2019. And she has also won the White Review Short Story Prize and the Virago Stylist Short Story Competition and has been published in Granta, The White Review and Tank Magazine, among others. And today we're going to be talking about Blue Ticket, which is Sophie's latest novel. Sophie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. So how would you describe Blue Ticket for us, first of all? So I would kind of describe it personally as almost like a psychedelic road trip. Like, it's kind of a bit speculative, a bit dystopian, but it follows a woman, Kala, who's pregnant as she basically tries to, I guess, wrestle with the control of her life. Uh, so Kala has been assigned a Blue Ticket. Um, when you are in this world that the book is set in, women um, are sent to a lottery station in adolescence and they have to pick a ticket, a white ticket or a blue ticket. A white ticket means you have family and a blue ticket means you can't so Kala has picked a blue ticket and is kind of happy with her lot but then at some point things start changing for her and she starts to question her ticket and she gets pregnant and goes on the run and you say a bit dystopian and a bit speculative and I remember when we talked about the water cure we talked about the style of that book and blue ticket follows a similar thing in that you don't spend the whole lot of time world building this place you present this situation this is the situation straight in there we're off there's no this is the place this is how this happened things got gradually worse then they ended up in this situation here we are now it's just this is the situation and we're off and i think first of all i i love that i love the fact that it's just deal with it this is the situation get on with it but also i think in a lot of ways it there's various ways in which the Kala herself and the other women in this book are ignorant of their own situations and so that sort of seems to be reflected in the style of the book as well yeah, definitely. Like, like she doesn't know anything about pregnancy. She doesn't know anything about what it's going to do to her body, which is quite a scary idea. But yeah, I kind of I, I really like borrowing things. I think from speculative and dystopian fiction. Like I, my my priority is like not making. 
I guess, not creating a dystopian world that is very fleshed out. My priority is kind of not the dystopia, I guess. Mine is more, I've got this idea and I've got the story and the character and how can I best kind of, I guess, show this character's journey? What can I borrow from any genre? Like, what can I borrow from film? What can I borrow from art? What can I borrow from dystopia? <laughs> I just, I love the freedom of just being able to create a world which is completely your own and you can take whatever you need from anywhere. And, you know, I think that's, you know, it's part of the joy of writing is that you can actually do that. And so I think just ambiguity is a very good space to be doing that and to be leaving those gaps and to be throwing people right in it without necessarily explaining so much. So what other things in particular might have been an influence on this story? Uh, I think definitely it feels very filmic. When I was writing it, it felt filmic. I was listening to a lot of music and like a very specific kind of soundtrack <laughs> that I'd made for the book. And I had like a, a whole mood board about um, kind of images that I had taken from films, um, like road trip movies, but also um, I think one film that was a really big like visual influence for me was Morgan Kala, the film mm. adaptation, because there's kind of there's hotels and landscapes um i also like i think because when the water year came out i was lucky enough to travel a lot and got to stay in a lot of hotels in that year and i really love hotels and i love i love service stations like you can probably put me in the most rubbish hotel in the world and i would have a lovely time because it's just something about the i guess like the in-betweenness of it you're in a room and you're by yourself and you've got all these tiny little shampoos and stuff and you can kind of do what you like and i think like you don't really get to do that anywhere else but in a hotel so kind of I guess using all the all these things I was thinking about and experiencing just sort of squishing them into into a vaguely speculative book and I don't know if I'm projecting this as well but I also thought with the um the sort of style of the book that as I said seems even more pared down than the um than the water cure did it's written in little paragraphs with spaces in between them and is often sort of very again we don't have that much of a grasp on the outside world it's often very dreamlike and in fact Color often talks about that and I wondered also as it goes on whether or not it's representing the I guess the state of pregnancy in some ways as well the fact that a person's body is is sort of changed their sort of hormones change their body out of their control as well yeah I think definitely for sure and one thing that I really like in a book is having a kind of time structure. I think I, if I don't have a specific structure, it can kind of, I can get a bit lost, but actually like it's great. It has a built-in structure because, you know, she's got nine months. <laughs> and so she has to like, you know, the story has to be nine months long and that kind of short paragraph. Yeah. Like the short paragraph, the usage of short paragraphs for me was both kind of, I guess, yeah, re- representing her kind of physical reality, but also she's quite like a fragmented person and it's quite a, I guess it's quite a difficult experience that she's going through and it's almost like only what's necessary is kept in, if that makes sense, because she's kind of, she has to be super focused. So it, in a way, it's almost like she's kind of, it's just about what she's experiencing in those moments and the rest is kind of superfluous and we don't need to know about it. How did that come together in the writing then? So did you have a much more detailed version that you sort of stripped down? I'm not sure if I ever got that much more detailed. I'm kind of the... I kind of like to fill things out more than strip them down but I do a lot of drafts like loads and loads and I do think looking at my document where I kind of put all the bits that I've cut out I think I did strip easily probably 20,000 words from the draft I think I like to have the extra words as the kind of the backstory that I know about personally and that will kind of give me give me the ability to fill in to, to leave those gaps so I kind of know what's happening but then I don't think it's necessary to the story I guess Let's talk more about Kala then. Tell us something more about who she is. 
So she's quite tough and quite cold. I guess the main thing in the context of the book that people comment on is like she does not seem very maternal. And I mean, that's the kind of, that's a key element of the book is that she would kind of be probably the person you'd meet in a bar who'd be a bit drunk and you'd probably think she didn't like you because she'd be quite aloof. <laughs> and, and, you know, she's very, she's very absorbed in the idea of herself as self-contained entity and someone who doesn't need anyone. So to actually then be experiencing, I think, this kind of physical want, which she didn't expect when she kind of starts wanting to have a child. And then, you know, all of that brings about all the changes that are very out of your control and unpredictable. It's quite a hard thing for her character. And she puts that on herself as well, because she constantly has this this idea that her situation, she is somehow bad and she is being judged fundamentally that, you know, she's been judged to be not maternal, which is why she got the blue ticket. But then almost constantly she's being, she feels she's being observed and judged. And, and I guess that's one of the things that, you know, the concept of, you know, just women constantly being judged, whatever they do is, is one of the ways in which this reflects back to women's experience in the real world. Yeah, definitely. Like she is, she is kind of watched and judged, but something as well as that was interested in exploring was the ways in which we self-police ourselves as well and you know she's been told her entire life she is a blue ticket she's not maternal and it's something that's not for her it's been reinforced constantly and has almost kind of led her I guess into a different kind of life and I'm, I was interested in the idea of how we kind of internalize these ideas about ourselves, as well as getting those ideas from external forces and obviously I mean kind of works both ways if if you are being judged constantly then you will kind of internalize it more but there's so much self-policing in the book I think and um like you know the, everyone's kind of pitted against each other a bit and that's kind of that's almost the scariest thing in the world especially in the dystopian context because it's not just as simple as like all the baddies are out to get us it's like what if the baddies kind of inside you and it's also all around <laughs> it does have that that sort of feel of you know what people imagine it must have been like to be in like, East Germany or something you know in the Cold War where Nobody can trust anybody else. And the situation itself has poisoned, even for the people that might... I mean, to be fair, you never really make this judgment, but, you know, some people might think that the white tickets are the ones that have won this lottery. But at the same time, you know, their relationship, the relationship between husbands and wives on that side is also poisoned by... Like, every relationship that happens in this book seems to be sort of like poisoned by this outside situation yeah it's kind of it's hard because in this world like how many people or in the world of the book how many people kind of get what they're assigned and what they really want kind of lining up I guess and when there is so much on their kind of their roles and there is so much kind of hanging on it it's just yeah it all feels a bit sort of transactional and and, unreal and not very none of it feels very very um happy I guess I let right in there and said that you know the people with the white tickets have, are the ones that you know might be perceived as to have as to have got the better deal. You know, that's really not the case. And what I find interesting in in the lives of the the blue ticket women is the illusion of freedom. I guess what it is. There's no choice. Like the people don't have choice. But the blue ticket women are given this idea of like total, almost total freedom. And in fact, you know, we could say that the women who are blue tickets, you know, get to behave in ways in terms of their sexual autonomy, for instance, that women are not granted in the world that we live in. And yet, you know, the, the sort of the key theme of the book here seems to be that, you know, this idea of choice is an illusion. 
yeah definitely just yeah that idea of again I think it comes back to the self-policing thing again where it's like is Kala like actually making decisions based on her own her own want or is she kind of has she got these ideas from somewhere else even in terms when it comes to the baby like she kind of feels like she's making a choice but is she making that choice just because she wants to make a choice and it's something that's kind of not open to her I always think it would have been it would have been interesting to kind of explore a blue ticket woman who's a bit more happy with her life but also maybe uses her life more for good in a way that Kala doesn't not that Kala doesn't but you know you know someone who's like has excelled in their career or something and is actually very happy with the idea of not having a child and because it, it, it's not as simple as like oh you're you're either a mother or you're like a chain smoking heavy drinking renegade <laughs> really it's totally not that simple but I think for the idea of the book it was kind of to keep things manageable I guess I mean, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the way that that was sort of carried on even after she becomes pregnant, that there is like, you know, lots of scenes of, of smoking and drinking. Again, we've already discussed that, you know, they these women don't necessarily know anything about any of the information about childbirth, about pregnancy, about what's good and bad. But but it was it was sort of like quite shocking and transgressive to see the amount of smoking and drinking that she carried on. Yeah, I mean, like, she literally doesn't, I mean, she kind of knows, but I don't think she knows knows. Like, she kind of was told, like, once from a, a leaflet, but I think it's part of me just, you know, even writing it, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm getting a bit of a reaction, you know, making a pregnant woman down a whiskey. <laughs> like, it's kind of, it's really not acceptable, but it kind of makes you think about, there really are, like, quite some taboos around that stuff. We do expect a lot from mothers, and there is a lot of judgment in that, even fictionally. And I know readers have had, like, quite visceral reactions to that, and even though it's like it's literally made up <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange how kind of entrenched in a like it is i guess yeah i mean it's, it's it is amazing how sort of in, how society polices women during pregnancy in that way because i can think of you know occasions where you might be in the street and see a, a pregnant woman smoking and it is a shock it, it is like a shocking sight and you do go <gasps> yeah i bet i remember in um i was watching catastrophe and it's got sharon the sharon hogan mm. Rob Delaney and I think it's the only TV show maybe where I've seen like a woman drinking like she wasn't drinking a lot because she occasionally has like a glass of red wine and it's a stressful situation and I think you are allowed to have like a glass of red wine but I, I was kind of interested how I'd never actually seen a woman drinking a pregnant woman drinking in a TV show before and it did feel like quite like transgressive even to see her having this tiny little bit of wine. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sophie McIntosh. We're talking about her latest novel, Blue Ticket. And Sophie, we've already talked about how there there is minimal world building in the setup of the story, and you, and you outline the idea of the ticket. So this is a woman is either given a blue ticket or a white ticket, and therefore she can have children or not have children. But there are ways in which you you do expand on their lives in this world. And one of the ways I wanted to talk about, which is left, it is left very mysterious, often for deliberate reasons, because Callum might not necessarily want to recall it. But let's talk about this idea that the women after the lottery, because they're girls, it's you know when they they first hit puberty that this lottery happens they are basically then abandoned to fend for themselves and and are given like the most cursory equipment for their journey to the city what happens so i guess like the lottery i'm kind of very interested in the idea of ritual and kind of ritualizing experiences that are you know kind of not universal experiences but experiences of adulthood and growing up and i guess um like Carla being sent away in the book is kind of a ritual and the lottery is a ritual and then this journey into the city is is another kind of ritual and I guess it it was kind of a slightly maybe heavy-handed metaphor for you know the idea of making it to adulthood but there's a difference in the way that the blue ticket women and the white ticket women make this journey there is it is more dangerous with the blue ticket women and I think you know it it was mainly kind of me trying to physically conceptualize a very like nebulous but real feeling yeah and to make it to make it real in this strange ritualized world and this is a world again where on the one hand women do have more seemingly more autonomy certainly around their sexuality and their ability to express that but it is also you know it's a world of omnipresent as as is a world of omnipresent male violence and i wanted to talk about writing about that it's a patriarchal society the whole overriding scheme here is is very very clearly a patriarchal society but also on that on the journey to the city there are predatory men and all through especially once obviously once 
Kala again leaves the safety, the you know the perceived safety of the city in the hotels and service stations along the way. There is these. There's always this sort of omnipresent danger of of, of violent men. I think um, yeah, it's something is, that kind of came up in the water cure as well. And I guess it's not that you know it's not like I think all men are terribly violent or anything. But like you said, we kind of do live in a patriarchy, and so I kind of always end up writing <laughs> these things which do involve kind of male violence because I guess it's just kind of I know realistically that's what that's out there for these girls like if they're on the road making this journey um if they're kind of in this futuristic world which is a bit dog eat dog and does kind of divide women into categories based on these nebulous features which we don't really know about based on like what kind of women they are and what that means for their worth and you know what that means for the men's ability to have a family as well it just kind of i guess i just kind of fit for me because it's not like we can't pretend that male violence doesn't exist and i think yeah maybe it's more explicit in this world but only because everything is a bit more stark in this world as well i think in writing the book did you do research into into pregnancy did you talk to pregnant women or women with children yeah yeah i did loads um, i mean I'm, i don't have a baby myself but i have i've got lots of friends who've been having babies i did do a lot of research into pregnancy i mean i'm kind of fascinated by it anyway it wasn't really even like sort of i'm doing a research for my book it was like i'm researching for my own my own needs <laughs> yeah maybe maybe things like watching a natural cesarean video on youtube wasn't strictly necessary and i don't know <laughs> if i would do that again <laughs> but yeah like talking to friends and family about it was really important and you know it was important for me to kind of work out my own feelings as well and it's always like it kind of fed into both the book and my feelings because you know the more i thought about pregnancy and the more it became like less of an abstract idea and more of a thing in my life the more I wanted to talk about it and then the more I was thinking about it and then the more it kind of fell into the book. Just one more thing for me and then I'll get you to read a bit of, of Blue Ticket if you would. Um, what's next? What are, you, what are you working on next? Is there anything you can tell us about? Um, I'm working on a historical novel at the moment. I'm just kind of taking it, taking it slow. Um, but yeah, it's quite different to anything I've written before but I still think it has the bits that I find fun about like borrowing from speculative and dystopian fiction which is that you know if you borrow from historical fiction as well you can still make things up it's just maybe maybe there's like the less of the expectation that you're kind of predicting the future or like trying to fix a problem or making some massive statement on society it's like nope I'm just writing about something that actually happened but I'm doing it in my own in my own little way so <laughs> we'll see um, so I'm going to read a bit from the lottery station scene where they pick their ticket the floorboards were wooden varnished aggressively Countless feet had scuffed that floor. It pooled the reflections of all the lights, spotlights from the ceiling, a lamp on the desk where a man in a dark suit sat on an orange plastic chair, watching us, legs crossed. He could have been a doctor, but he wore no white coat, no white plastic gloves. There were four other girls in their own dresses sitting on a row on a wooden bench, flowers both real and fake pinned chests. They were not the girls from my school. One wore velvet, two wore tulle, and the other wore satin like me. We lined up, waiting to pull our tickets from the machine, the way you would take your number at the butcher's counter. The music popular that year played from speakers on the ceiling. Just gravity enough, just ceremony enough, not necessarily such an important thing after all. My name was called first. They watched me as I walked the length of the room, towards the machine inside its cloaked box. I put my hand in it. I was apprehensive, but ready for my life to be decided. I closed my eyes and thought about my father with the wine bottle to his eye. The machine was silent as it discharged a sliver of hard paper into my hand. It was a deep cobalt, 
Congratulations, the possible doctor in the dark suit said to me. The other girls followed, each taking their own ticket from the machine in turn. Almost a full house, he exclaimed at the end, reading a piece of paper spat out from the machine. We huddled and compared tickets. They were all blue, except for one, which was white. The girl with the white ticket was escorted into a separate room by the doctor and another emissary. We watched the three of them walk through an unlit doorway. When the doctor came back, he clapped his hands twice. You have been spared, he said, with a terrible benevolence. At the desk, the emissary who'd been on the door wrote down the results to communicate to homes, to clinics, to places distant and important that we did not know about. One by one, we were called into another room, a different room to the girl who had pulled the white ticket. I lay on a reclining chair with a crisp paper cover and another doctor, this one a woman and comforting almost, in the familiar white coat, told me to fold up my knees. She pushed something inside me that hurt, a sharp and spidering pain. What is it? I asked, and she said, your doctor will explain it all when you get to wherever you're going. She said when and not if, and I was grateful for that. The bathroom of the lottery house was filled with yellow light, the veins of my thin neck standing out underneath it. I was a plucked chicken with badly applied eyeshadow, but the locket was around my throat now. There was a long low mirror above the sink, a wicker chair in the corner, and two bathroom stalls painted peach. In the mirror, I watched the other girls leaning against the wall, toes flexing, eyes raised to the ceiling, moving to the door when the girl with the white ticket came in to join us, then back at the ceiling. There was a dying flower arrangement at the corner of the sink, gaps of oasis showing through pink carnations. The music came through in here too, speakers in the ceiling or underneath the sink. At first I kept looking at the girl who had drawn the white ticket, the other girl in satin, though hers was pale blue and dirty at the hem where it dragged. Her eyes were red. I had the urge to take her arm and run with her somewhere, out to the woodland where I used to smoke with the other girls my age between lessons, beyond the broken barbed wire of the school perimeter where the teachers could not see us. But I did not touch her. I made myself stop looking. Inside the cubicle, I spent some time reading the names and dates scratched on the door. With the safety pin that held on my fake peony corsage, I engraved Kala, blue ticket, a smiley face and the date underneath. The swell of relief, smooth and natural as a muscle. I would never have children, and I was glad. I had been a child myself not so long ago. I did not want to put any puny creature through that. I went with the rest of the girls back to the lottery room, where our parents stood lined up. There was a table with pots of tea and coffee, biscuits and thin sandwiches on china plates, packets of tissues. The doctor who had supervised the whole thing stood in front of the parents, as if we had interrupted them mid-address. Maybe we had. The mothers smiled. The fathers looked grim. An emissary handed us each a bottle of water, a compass and a sandwich from the table wrapped in a napkin. We did not get to pick the filling. The bottle given to the white ticket girl was larger than ours, I noticed, and she received two sandwiches. It was happening immediately, the diverging of our paths, no time to spare. Go, the doctor said to us, to the place of your choice. Walk into it, anywhere but here. Congratulations. I met my father's gaze. I had a city in mind. He looked back at me and nodded his head. We walked out together into the cool night. The adults stayed in the light for coffee and refreshments to debrief with the doctor. We might see our parents again. We might not. Some of the girls halted at once when we got outside. They didn't know where to go. New and bewildered as the fawns I saw at the edges of the trees in the dusk. The girl with the white ticket, though. She walked directly into the woods, the lights of our torches bouncing off the satin until she was gone into the dark. We were not so different. 
I put the compass in the palm of my hand, north or south, east or west, the flicker of the needle, the splintered light of the moon on its glass casing. I knew I could do this, could prove myself something beyond tulip cuticles and the mold smell of the bathroom and boys in the dark, fumbling for something I was willing to give but barely had. My life was out there, ahead of me. I had to run to it, now that the shape of it was cast. Some of the girls followed me as I set off down the pale stretch of road. I listened to the pad of their feet behind me, unwilling to let them come closer. One of the girls was crying for her mother, but her mother would not come. Nobody would come. So I've been talking to Sophie McIntosh. We've been talking about her latest novel, Blue Ticket, which is out now in the UK from Hamish Hamilton. Sophie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you for having me, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.